0: This is a two-part series where we talk about the role of TCA cycle in the evolution of eukaryotes. Here is the second part for you all to enjoy. If you haven't listened to the first part, I highly recommend going back and listening to it first.
1: Now let's talk about one of my favorite features that IKEA have, which is the histones. We learned in school that in eukaryotes, histone is packed and wrapped uh, in nucleosomes formed by the octamer of histones with DNA. One way of modifying the histone is by adding modifications in the histone tails, for example, acetylation that leads to the opening of the chromatin. In fact, this modification is derived from the TCS cycle intermediate, the citrate, and ATP uh, citrate lyase, both of which influence gene expression. Dylan, can you tell us uh, if histone tells can also be modified in archaea uh, similar to the eukaryotes? And also back to the thing that we discussed earlier in the terminology, what are some of the differences between the chromatin in archaea and that found in the um, eukaryotes?
2: Absolutely. So I think, I think this is one of the key findings and you know, I, I found this remarkable, the work that's currently ongoing and mm-hmm. kind of archaeal histone structure, but yet yeah, we do find histones and um, uh, which seem to be the evolutionary origin of histones that we find in eukaryotes um, and they have this histone fold that allows for the wrapping, uh, DNA wrapping into nucleosomes that would eventually give rise to eukaryotic histones. Now, of the archaeal histones that have been identified to date not all of them actually have this characteristic histone tail and in fact the more i've kind of read up on it recently but there has been discoveries of uh more atypical histones or what they've called a aty- which actually do seem to have short kind of n or c terminal extensions that could be similar to eukaryotic histones so we actually do see kind of evidence the more and more analysis that's actually done on through metagenomics of all, of all these archaeal populations that there does seem to be some similar uh, eukaryotic like uh, histones found in Archaea and um, whether these can be modified experimentally it, 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 because it's because they're very 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 hard to culture in a lot of contexts mm-hmm. we're not quite sure if they're regulated in the same way but uh, these particular histones are probably thought to be the ancestors of H3 and H4. Um, but it's actually thought that that the other histones that we find, like say histone 2A and histone 2B, probably arose from H3 and H4 later on in histone evolution, which is a, a great support to the kind of archaeal histone origin um, of eukaryotic histones as well. Um, but that's kind of where we're at now. We don't know if they can be regulated in the same way, but I would say speculate that with the discovery of these kind of c-terminal tails I would I would propose that they could
1: right so thank you Dylan let's go back to the point of uh, energetic status of the eukaryotic cells and the histone modifications and just like histone mitochondrial proteins can undergo spontaneous lysine acetylation that is linked as well to the metabolic uh, state of the cell interestingly Spontaneous acetylation also happens in the histone-like nucleoid structure protein found in E. coli, a small binding DNA polypeptide that is important for the DNA looping formation in the bacterial chromosome. And this feature is today present in, in modern eukaryotes where the three main nutrient sensors of eukaryote uh, um, MAPK, mTOR, and CGN2 transmit signals to chromatin via histone modifications. And this data indicates that mitochondrial metabolite signaling was essential and perhaps one of the main driving forces for the development of eukaryotic genome complexity.
0: There, I think that was AMPK. That's the A-M-P-K. S- nutrient sensor. Okay. Right, um. Yeah, yeah.
2: AMPK, yeah, very important.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's easy to confuse AMPK and MAPK, it looks like somebody wrote it wrong. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about coupling TCA cycle and remodeling to the chromatin dynamics. It is believed that cells build most of their molecules from carbon dioxide and the following five primary metabolites. Acetate, pyruvate, oxaloacetate, succinate, and alpha-ketoglutarate three of these five are TCA cycle intermediates. Some experiments from Muchowska and colleagues in 2019 were able to demonstrate that a complex reaction network can develop from only pyruvate and glyoxylate, two simple organic acids, in the presence of iron as catalyst. This abiotic network was able to produce 9 out of the 11 tca cycle intermediates and the authors proposed that this could have been an early route for carbon dioxide fixation into organic molecules other metals present on the earlier years of earth could have helped in producing even more molecules like glycine alanine glutamate and aspartate. while these were abiotic systems with no living cells involved they do show that chemical reactions and the catalysts required to form important metabolites always existed and possibly the formation of genetically encoded enzymes would have led to an even more efficient system giving rise to what we call life dylan when i read about this study i was surprised that such few ingredients were needed to form some of the essential metabolites that support life Are there other uh, competing or supporting hypotheses or studies about the origin of basic chemistry of life apart from this one?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I'd be remiss if I could say I could recall them all, but uh, there's definitely one that comes to mind, probably from recency bias, because I actually already read this paper a couple of weeks ago. But there's a, a another abiotic scenario, which I believe they call the cyanosulfidinic origin of the TCA cycle. Mm-hmm. So this was actually proposed, and um, it, it's different to the Machowska study. They use, um, I believe, kind of ferrous iron and hydroxylamine in their abiotic system to to reconstitute these pathways in, in an abiotic fashion. In the kind of cyanosulfidinic uh, origin, so was a couple of years ago they showed. Um, that it, there could be this abiotic origin of RNA and protein and lipid precursors as well as the TCA cycle. But more recently, they've kind of extended this. And uh, ultimately what this is, it's uh, derived from the photochemical reduction of hydrogen cyanide or hy- sulfide um, And ultimately this can actually lead to the, you know, this kind of UV photolysis of, of hydrosulfide can actually lead to um, these alpha-oxocarboxylates that we find in like the Krebs cycle and like, the oxide shunt. So that's just one example of, you know, some some hypotheses that are similar, but slightly competing that maybe the the, the initial chemistry will be a bit different and this one would involve kind of UV light, uh, etc. But um, it's, it's a fascinating area. And the fact that there's possibly like an abiotic origin of such complex, um, you know, precursors to RNA proteins, lipids, TCA cycle, um, it, it's a really fascinating area of research.
0: Yeah, I think it shows that things like these do form spontaneously it's not as far-fetched as we might imagine it is still amazing but no, yeah uh, just not that not that rare
2: absolutely and and adds like so we can we, we can re- recreate this in the lab so add in time you know add in certain conditions and most of these experiments actually try to use evidence of what we would have known from an early earth which is you know uh, fascinating as well so like you know it. An added layer to the detective work that's ongoing, but yeah, it's remarkable that, it, and it's not uh, beyond capabilities. That given the time, uh, the, the timeline we're considering, that these things will emerge spontaneously.
0: Yeah, like millions of years. That should mm-hmm. should should have some time point where just the right conditions emerge to get this to be working.
2: Absolutely.
0: Now that we have established how TCA cycle produces some of the key metabolites for supporting life, let's move into the evolutionary relevance of TCA cycle. It is possible that before the TCA cycle as we know it existed, there was another cycle called the reductive TCA cycle whose main objective was not to oxidize different compounds, but to fix carbon dioxide to produce acetyl CoA as the development of the mitochondria took place with endosymbiosis, this reductive TCA cycle, also called RTCA, may have evolved into the TCA cycle we know as it started getting coupled to the oxidative phosphorylation step that takes place on the membranes of the mitochondria. Here is a cool fact. Tumors that have defected mitochondria do switch to the archaic reductive TCA cycle and may stop providing the reducing equivalence for oxidative phosphorylation. Dylan, could this be one of the reasons why some tumors exhibit the Warburg effect where they completely rely on glycolysis for their metabolic needs?
2: Absolutely, it's a very interesting idea. And even the reductive TCA cycle, so there's probably some, um, uh, we can kind of dive in to the reductive TCA cycle itself. So it's possible that this was actually um, one of the first methods of uh, carbon dioxide assimilation, um, as opposed to, so it might have actually evolved as, as as a means to actually assimilate carbon from carbon dioxide, as opposed to just the oxidative TCA cycle that we know that we use to extract um, energy from. Um, and 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 interestingly as well, and with that as well, while well, um, it it was previously thought that the reductive uh, TCA cycle required two enzymes, and um, that that were were different and um, to the to what we know about the oxidative tca cycle even more recently they have found in certain species i think it's a term of and um, that they actually have a citrate synthase that's reversible now it's it's there's very quite unique conditions that um, I wouldn't be able to recall now that's required for the, the, the reverse activity of citrate synthase, but uh, it's remarkable that it, with, with the TCA cycle as we know it, that it could actually act uh, reductively. But kind of coming back to your point about um, the Warburg effect in uh, defective mitochondria, and in fact, yeah, these tumours can use glutamine and they will actually consume glutamine and this will be converted into citrate and so they kind of assimilate carbon uh, and use it to build lipids and yeah... Uh, it kind of detaches. It's, it's how, like a, a, for example, the cell that I work on, and um, the, and the tumor type uh, is actually characterized by dysfunctional mitochondria and aerobic glycolysis. And in fact, it actually needs this kind of reductive uh, glutamine uh, action to be able to synthesize enough lipids to actually grow and metastasize, etc. So, yes, there's definitely a very interesting connection uh, there.
0: Okay, another. Interesting aspect here is the evolution of cooperativity and multi- multicellularity. A primitive cell would depend on the quick ATP production and try to outcompete its neighbor, but a more advanced cell like the one with the mitochondrion would go for a slow rate of ATP production but with a high yield, which means it's also being more efficient. Essentially, the cells could choose either to produce ATP quickly but in a less amount of time, I mean in less amount or to produce ATP, more ATP, but slowly. If think of these options, the first one would allow for short-term benefits, while the latter would give some long-term benefits and a possibility to coexist and cooperate with neighboring cells instead of competing for resources. I'm so hyped about this. This also brings me back to the tragedy of the commons that Dylan was mentioning. This whole scenario reminds me of this social experiment that took place. So while right now we are talking about cellular evolution, there was an experiment at Stanford. It was called the marshmallow experiment. What happened was there were kids, uh, kids about I think four to six years of age, they were recruited and they were asked to, they were offered cookies or marshmallows. And then they were asked to either wait for 15 minutes. If they could wait for 15 minutes, they would get two cookies or marshmallows. So certain kids could not wait for that. Some kids were eating their cookies while they were being briefed about it. <laughs> and some kids were yeah. able to wait. So these experimenters, they followed these kids who could wait or could not wait, essentially saying that people, kids who could wait, they had the self-control over it. And they found that these kids were successful, those who could wait, they were more successful in their life in many aspects later on. So it reminds me of this right here on a cellular level that cells that could coexist, that could uh, get to terms to form ATP slowly, uh, but more ATP, uh, more efficiency, they were able to outcompete others. Such a great, like, philosophy thing. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Interesting.
0: All right. Uh, Let's highlight the role of TCA cycle in the regulation of gene expression. An important way gene expression is modulated is through how tightly the chromatin is packed. Typically, the tight tight binding of histones to DNA would prevent a gene from getting transcribed and a loosely packed chromatin would allow for gene transcription. Some chemical modifications on both DNA and histones can alter the tightness of the chromatin package. In this article, there is a speculation that certain classes of histone demethylases enzymes that remove the methylation marks from histones and allow for increased gene expression might have evolved around the same time as the endosymbiosis occurred since these enzymes required flavin for their activity the same flavin compound that is an electron carrier in the fadh2 complex that's needed in the oxphos process or oxidative phosphorylation process Additionally, many intermediates of the TCA cycle have been studied to be involved in regulation of gene's functions. Let me give some examples. Acetyl-CoA derived from citrate is used as a substrate for the acetylation of histones. Acetylation typically loosens the chromatin and makes the DNA more accessible to gene transcription. Second, there is alpha-ketoglutarate, which is an important cofactor for a specific class of histone demethylases that are are dependent on alpha-ketoglutarate for functioning. Interestingly, fumarate and succinate are known to inhibit this class of enzymes. So this makes a tight network of regulation of how much uh, uh, fumarate, succinate, and alpha-ketoglutarate a cell produces can govern gene expression profiles in that cell. The third fumarate is known to be generated near the sites of DNA damage where it inhibits a class of histone demethylases and facilitates the process of double strand break repair and non homologous end joining process. This way this particular TCA intermediate fumarate is helping to increase genome stability which is always a good thing for an organism to survive. And fourth there is also evidence that alpha ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex an enzyme complex that's present in the TCA cycle helps in succinylation of histones at transcription start sites of genes, therefore allowing gene expression. Uh, Dylan, just because there's tons of examples available, apart from what I've mentioned, are there any other important ways the TCA cycle helps in gene expression regulation that you would like to add?
2: So you touched on uh, a lot of the important epigenetic regulation. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about direct modulation of chromatin structure, which would facilitate, you know, the winding and unwinding and accessibility of particular DNA segments. But uh, there's another layer of, uh, which would also belong to the idea of epigenetic regulation, although it doesn't neatly fit in to that category anymore, is the activation of transcription factors, which are gonna facilitate Uh, the recruitment of RNA polymerase and and, uh, the synthesis of of mRNA. Uh, And in fact, um, there's a similar family of enzymes that also require alpha-ketoglutarate, the the prolyl hydroxylases, which regulate uh, hypoxia-inducible factor stability. And it's known that uh, differences in the ratio of alpha-ketoglutarate to succinate or fumarate can actually inhibit their activity and activate uh, HIF, which can then actually translocate to the nucleus and induce gene expression that way. Um, myself, I worked on the activation of the master antioxidant transcription factor, uh, NRF2 it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and, fumar- and fumarate and idaconate are actually these reactive metabolites that regulate these key sensing, uh, these key cysteine residues on, on this protein called KEEP1 and KEEP1 is a negative regulator of NRF2. And in fact, when you modify these cysteines on KEEP1, you activate NRF2, and then this will translocate to the nucleus and induce this uh, gene expression program. So we actually see a, a, like a real multi-tiered, multi-layered approach to regulation of gene expression by TCA cycle metabolites and TCA cycle derivatives as well. And um, so we see multiple layers of regulation from the expression to the structure of chromatin that's linked to TCA cycle function.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot for adding that. Uh, Dara, would you like to lead the discussion again?
1: Yes, sure. So let's move on to the last part, which is the part where we talk about the TCA recycle, the TCA cycle remodeling and signaling as a common evolutionary strategy. You know that the common evolutionary strategy used by eukaryotes to adapt to stress conditions and regulate crucial Biological processes are the TCS cycle remodeling and repurposing of TCS cycle enzymes or metabolites. In fact, a recent study has shown that TCS cycle enzymes transiently localize to the nucleus and regulate the genome during psychotic genome activation and regulate the epigenome. Uh, psychotic genome activation is an important process that marks the initiation of gene expression after fertilization and it is part of the transition of fertilized oocyte into a psychode uh, that gives rise to the embryo and uh, will develop into a newborn. The impairment of uh, this TCS psychoenzyme trafficking correlates with a loss of specific histone modification and blocks psychotic genome activation as well as early uh, pre-implantation development in mammals. Uh, but what about other organisms such as plants? Plants uh, also show a clear plastic city when it comes to the regulation of TCS cycle enzymes, which dramatically change uh, in shoots and responds to a wide range of stress such as osmotic, osmotic, uh, genotoxic, salt, uh, heat, drought, uh, oxidative stresses. Uh, during salt stress, for example, the fumarate hydratase is highly upregulated in response to drought and uh, salt stressors in tomato uh, as it is an important regulator of stomal function and photosynthesis. In contrast to salt stress, UBV radiation suppresses enzymes uh, in the second half of TCA cycle and allowing intermediates to be used for the synthesis of another uh, TCA-derived metabolite, which is essential for uh, plant defense against microbes. Uh, this further supports the idea that the modulation of specific TCS cycle and metabolites in an evolutionary conserved phenomenon is an evolutionary, evolutionary conserved phenomenon to adapt to various stress conditions as well as uh, the immune response as well. Dylan, uh, is there any evidence of TCS cycle remodeling observed in human cells as well?
2: Absolutely, yes. There, there's there's lots of evidence of uh, now emerging of TCA cycle remodeling mm-hmm. and it kind of brings us back full circle into where this kind of hypothesis started with, um, from work by others in the field that showed that in response to infection, I I'll, I'll have to be uh, biased and talk about my particular uh, uh, cell type that I love, the macrophage. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they, fa- what they found remarkably is that one of the most induced genes that is expressed in a macrophage when it, it responds to the activation of pattern recognition receptors such as TLR4, yeah. which would send like gram-negative bacteria, is an enzyme that was initially called immunoresponsive gene 1 because it was so highly induced in, 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 under this context and they didn't know what, what the enzyme done. Um, through great work from uh, Uh, Carsten Hiller's group what they found is that it's actually an enzyme cisiconotate decarboxylase that Mm -hmm. synthesizes itaconate, and it causes a truncation of the TCA cycle so what happens is you get a siphoning away of um, cisiconotate into itaconate and itaconate itself can actually act as a direct antimicrobial so it's involved in antimicrobial defense and more recently, we're kind of uncovering uh, that it actually acts as a signal that leaves mitochondria to regulate uh, different proteins such as NRS2 and other stress response pathways. So we actually see this in human cells and human macrophages and uh, there's just a lot more uh, work that we're, that's, that's currently ongoing and it's a, it's a very exciting avenue of research
1: wow so you also mentioned that um, uh, the ability of the itaconate to act as an anti-inflammatory metabolite in some other immune cells as well such as uh, neutrophil
2: pardon could you repeat that sorry okay
1: so uh so the ability of itaconate to act as an anti-inflammatory metabolite has um important implications uh uh, and you also mentioned that it uh, can also enable host survival uh by inhibiting Neutrophil infiltration in the lung infection by uh, MTB, as well.
2: Abs- absolutely, and that's one of the the so so the. Interesting thing about Itoconase is it seems to be a, a negative regulator of overactivation. So it's mm. as well as actually acting as a direct antimicrobial. Uh, and we know it's an antimicrobial because uh, many pathogens, such as um, Mycobacterium tuberculosis um, or even Pseudomonas aeruginosa, they actually express enzymes uh, under pathogenicity islands that are designed to degrade conase so it seems that there's been this evolutionary arms race between uh, you know eukaryotes and the, the, these pathogens even in humans and um, uh, that uh, that eventually some of these uh, pathogens have managed to overcome but on the flip side it also dampens kind of overactivation of the immune system so that we know it kind of can suppress or uh, temper, the expression of certain genes and in contexts such as mycobacterium tuberculosis infection in the lung it actually prevents this kind of immunopathology that's driven Um, It's thought to be uh, exclusively expressed in macrophages, but there is evidence that that itaconate is produced by other cell types. But it seems Mm -hmm. the effect on future actually derives from its regulation of macrophage responses. At least that's the current
0: thinking. If I remember correctly, the way itaconate works is by inhibiting the succinate succinate dehydrogenase complex and it breaks down the TCA cycle, right?
2: Absolutely. That's one of the mechanisms by which it can be anti-inflammatory. Yeah. So, and um, that's one that I forgot to mention as well is that it actually, the induction of uh, IRG1 or, or uh, CAD, cytokine decarboxylase and iodoconate actually acts as a competitive inhibitor of succinate dehydrogenase. Mm-hmm. So it causes this truncation of uh, the TCA cycle, which can be anti-inflammatory as well, as well as being a kind of a cysteine reactive metabolite that signals to, to other proteins. So, yeah, but we're, it, it's, it's very new. It's a, uh, The whole itaconate research field is 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 very new and it's uh, you know exploding in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, I think it's Luke's favorite molecule. Every every talk he mentions itaconate a lot.
2: (laughs) Absolutely, it used to be succinate, now it's itaconate.
1: Also, in neurons, Sika virus uh, induces the uh, necroptotic pathway to induce antagonist synthesis, which inhibits um, succinate dehydrogenase and uh, neuronal respiration to restrict the viral replication uh, and also prevent pathology as well, as you mentioned in the paper. Oh. What about coronavirus, Dylan? Uh, are there any new found evidence on that too?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, there's been some kind of preclinical work done on derivatives of idakin that show it can actually suppress and um, SARS-CoV-2 replication, mm-hmm. um, and like we're we're probably um, quite a ways away from actually having a clinically relevant relevant. Uh, a conate uh, derivative that can be used in the clinic but at the moment there's actually you may have heard of the drug uh, texadera that's based on a, a metal ester derivative of the tt cycle metabolite fumarate DMS, um, and by virtue of activation of the transcription factor nrs2 both of these can actually restrict sars cov 2 replication um, one of, one of the, the ways in which SARS-CoV-2 infects host cells, it actually suppresses the NRF2 pathway, which can be very important in restricting respiratory pathogens. So uh, there may be uh, you know, future clinical developments that can actually make different versions of these metabolites, which is where it becomes exciting for an, an immunologist that's in this arena.
0: The, NR, the NRF2 pathway, just for our listeners who may not be aware of it, it's an antioxidant pathway, right? That helps the cell deal with oxidative stress.
2: Absolutely, and that's what it would. That would what it's traditionally known to be involved in. But um, I'm currently still working on the pathway as well. And what seems to be emerging is that, as well as uh, regulating a lot of uh, redox enzymes, it's actually a central regulator of many metabolic enzymes, and actually kind of fine-tuned the response even in macrophages. And so it actually regulates mitochondrial morphology, uh, fatty acid oxidation, so it regulates bioenergetics. So it's really emerging as, as this kind of a factor that kind of bridges redox metabolism uh, and intermediary metabolism.
0: Okay, so so far we have learned so much about the mitochondrial signaling and the TCA cycle metabolites contributing to the genome uh, complex genome architecture in eukaryotes. And being one of the drivers of eukaryogenesis, um, Dylan, to end our overall discussion, do you know of any new cool things coming up in this line of research?
2: All, all the time, uh, absolutely. So, like kind of one development um, that I would like to add that we haven't touched on, um, and it actually came out as I was writing the perspective, and uh, I read this, and it was I, I was uh, I was kind of blown away. But uh, what's recently been found is that histones um, actually seem to have an intrinsic metabolic activity where they're involved in copper metabolism. Now copper metabolism is also a very important kind of cofactor for the function of uh, certain mitochondrial enzymes. So there may have been this emergence where uh, histones, now this was done in eukaryotic histones, so whether this is also um, applicable to um, archaeal histones, it's not quite sure yet Uh, And I'm sure it will be elucidated with with future work. But uh, initially there might have been this uh, symbiotic relationship where you might have had histones uh, producing uh, cofactors that were also important for uh, a a kind of anterograde communication that were important for uh, the initial endosymbiont function when it was becoming uh, this kind of respiratory organelle. Um, so I think that's a really exciting development that we have this metabolic crosstalk that's occurring. Uh, but, but even the field, you know, in general of kind of mitochondrial metabolite signaling in, in different in health and disease, uh, it's definitely a kind of watch this space um, because I know there's going to be a lot of fascinating discoveries over the next decade and, and beyond.
0: Yeah, hey, I think that's a great way to end our discussion uh, Tara what are some take-home points of our whole discussion today
1: okay so the first point is that long long ago proto uh, mitochondria and proto-eukaryotic cells enter into a symbiotic relationship which ended up forming the modern eukaryotic cell and with mitochondria The second point is that this process benefited both mitochondria and the host cell, and moreover communication between the two organisms have helped develop some of the other features of the eukaryotic cell, including new genes and also the nuclear envelope. The third point, the TCS cycle, may be a key part of the host mitochondria communication line. TCS cycle likely influenced chromatin remodeling uh, via the intermediate acetylchol And lastly, Given that TCS cycle remodeling influences so many eukaryotic cell processes, mitochondria have played a significant role in the evolution of eukaryotes from mammals to plants and beyond. woo
0: Okay, I think this would be a good time to uh, wrap up our session today. Thanks a lot, Dylan, for joining us.
1: Thank you, Dylan.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's been great and uh, this is my first ever podcast so it was a very exciting experience and thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah,
0: likewise. And thanks Tara, for the wonderful discussion. For our audience, if you are interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find out about our blogs, journal clubs and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com or just shoot us a message on Twitter or Facebook. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.